Good morning, church. The reading today is Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. That's again, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toll and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you have put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you have found them to be false, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Emma, thank you for doing our reading. McKenna, who probably has slipped out already, did that three services. Man, what a beautiful song. Yes, beautiful voice. McKenna, wherever you are, thank you. We appreciate it. Will you pray with me as we ask the Lord to minister to us through his word? Lord Jesus, you have revealed yourself to us. And you are still revealing yourself. We pray that you'd open our eyes so we can see you. We'd open, you'd open our ears so we can hear you. That you would enhance our senses so we can feel your presence. Lord, we ask for the Holy Spirit who you promised to send so he could teach us the things to come. So, Lord, as we study the things to come, we pray for the Holy Spirit to teach us now and for him to fill me and use me to speak truth for the glory of Christ. Lord, we ask that you minister to those who are away from us as well, for those who are at school or homesick, deployed, serving as missionaries, wherever they might be, Lord, as they commune with you, as they listen to our services online, we pray that you'd bless them as well. And Lord, we pray that our church would reflect you well and be what you want us to be. And Lord, this coming week as we have Vacation Bible School, we especially pray that you'd make this a place of safety, that you'd make this a place of blessing, that you'd make this a place of love and truth, and that we would see 20, 30 children as we have in the past, come to know Jesus Christ even more, Lord Jesus. Lord, we're mindful of our country and pray that you continue to guide our president and those around him, that you'd watch over our country and just that we might hear you and you'd reveal yourself to our leaders and they may choose to follow. We ask all these things now in your name, Lord Jesus the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Amen. Some things in life grow even when they're unattended. As we saw in the children's sermon, weeds grow, and we don't pay them any attention. Cancer grows in your body, unattended. Sin can grow in our hearts, unattended. But there are other things in our life, if we want them to grow and flourish and be healthy, we have to give them attention, kind of like children grow better when you give them attention. 
A savings account is not going to grow unless you give it some attention. And relationships, whether they be with God or with other people, need attention. You need to put time and effort into those relationships for them to grow. In his groundbreaking book, The Five Love Languages, Gary Chapman proposes that there are five love languages that people speak. We don't speak all five. We have our different language. And for relationships to grow and flourish, you need to be able to speak the love language of the person that you love. And he tells a story in his book how one family came for counseling and they were husband and wife who'd been married for a number of years with several children. And the wife said, my husband doesn't love me anymore. And the husband said, no, I love you. I love you. I love you. And she says, no, you don't. Yes, I do. No, you don't. And so the counselor said, well, tell me a little bit about your family. And so the husband described the family and what he did and all the jobs he did around the house and how he did the cooking and the cleaning and and took care of the yard and shuffled the kids here and there and all the laundry and everything. And he just about did everything in the house. And then he turned to the wife and said, I wish he'd stop doing all that and just leave the dirty dishes and sit down on the couch and ask me, how was your day? Because his love language was acts of service, and that's the way he expressed love, but hers was quality time. And so she needed quality time with him. And that situation with the husband and wife reminds me of what's going on as we come to Revelation chapter 2 the church in Ephesus. You might recall that we're in the book of Revelation, and the word revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypse. So we're studying the apocalypse, the revelation of Christ. And if you leave out the book of Revelation in your life, you've left out the revelation of Christ as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Because in the Gospels, we see his humility, but in Revelation, we see his exaltation. And so we learn about Christ, and the book of Revelation is to reveal us, reveal to us about Jesus. And as we come to chapter 2, verse 1, it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. And we're going to discover that there are seven letters to seven literal churches They were part of the first century in an area called Asia Minor that we call Turkey. And each one of the letters starts with a fresh vision of Jesus that that church specifically needed. Back in chapter 1, John sees Jesus glorified, and as Pastor Josh well said, he was horrified and fell on his face before Jesus. And he had this lengthy vision of Jesus, but a portion of that vision is re-shown to each church according to what they needed to see. And in this vision, the church sees Jesus holding the seven stars in his right hand, and we're told in chapter 1, verse 20, that those stars are the messengers of the seven churches. And they see Jesus, and it says that he walks among the seven golden lampstands. Those seven Golden lampstands are the churches that he's writing to, we're told, in chapter 1, verse 20. And then it goes on to say in verse 2, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. Now picture that this letter, written by Jesus to the church, John has penned it 
He's given it to a messenger who got on a boat and traveled a couple miles across the sea to Ephesus, which at that time was on the water and had the largest port of the day. Now that city is destroyed and the port is filled in with silt and the city is miles from the water. But then it was on the water and the letter got delivered to the church and the pastor gets up to read the letter to the church and they're listening and Jesus says, I know your deeds, your toil, your perseverance, they're nodding their head. That you cannot endure evil men. They're going, yeah, we couldn't stand that person. We got rid of them. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And the church is going, yeah, we remember that guy. He claimed to be an apostle and he wasn't. You found them to be false. And you have perseverance and you have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. And they're all shaking their head. That is us. Yes, we are the perfect church. Verse 4, but. But. That changes everything. Honey, that was an amazing dinner, but. How was your kid today at school? Oh, your child was really good, uh, but. The but changes everything, doesn't it? And so the church is saying, thinking, oh, we're a great church. We're the perfect church. She just goes, but. Everybody looks up, letters being read by the pastor. I have this against you, that you have left your first love. The church in Ephesus was doctrinally sound. They were diligent about performing good deeds. You might say they had a sound mind and a sound body. They thought right, they performed right but they had a bad heart. And if you have a bad heart, it can kill you. The pastor's sermons were doctrinally sound. The congregation's work in the community was commendable, but they'd lost their passion for Jesus, and they no longer could be called a loving church. I saw something in this passage last night as I was getting ready to preach it, and I didn't have a chance really to preach it last night because I wanted to study it, and it was extremely convicting when this morning over coffee I opened my Greek Bible and I go, oh my goodness. It's really interesting that even though these are letters to the seven churches, did you notice how it started? It doesn't say to the church in Ephesus. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. And as I mentioned a week or two ago, the word angel is just a Greek word, angelos, transliterated into English. And sometimes in the Bible it's translated as angel, but other times it's translated as messenger when it's talking about human messengers. And here, I don't believe he's talking about an angel that hovers over the church in some sort, and you'll see why in a minute. I think that. It's a messenger of the church, probably the pastor of the church. Because if you keep reading, this is a letter to the pastor of the church. And it says, verse 2, I know your deeds. Well, if you had the King James English, you would know if that was a singular or a plural you. We've lost that ability in our modern English. But in King James, if it says thy or thee or thou, you know it's singular. If it says ye, you know it's plural. In Greek, I can tell whether this is singular or plural. So I got up to preach. I didn't have my Greek Bible with me. So this morning, I got my Greek Bible out. I thought, I have to find out. Well, this is singular. I know your deeds. He's speaking to the pastor of the church. 
I know your toil. It's singular and perseverance. I know you, singular, cannot endure evil men. I know you put to the test, singular. And it goes on. They're all singular. Verse 4, but I have this against you, singular. You, singular, have left your first love. The pastor's reading the letter to the church, and it doesn't have the plural you. It has the singular you. Now, these are letters to the seven churches. We're told that in chapter 1. But why is the pastor singled out? Because the church becomes like their pastor. And if the pastor is teaching falsehood, the church starts believing falsehood. And if the pastor has lost his passion for Jesus Christ, the church is going to lose their passion for Jesus Christ. Well, I was curious, so I took out my Greek Bible, like I said this morning, over coffee. And I looked at every one of Paul's letters to the churches that he wrote in the Greek. I didn't read every word. I didn't have that big of coffee. But I want to know, when he says church, does he use it singular or plural? It is always plural, you, when he talks to you in the church. But here it's singular, and that's not by accident. And so the pastor is being convicted along with his church for having left their first love. You see, what had happened is Paul had planted this church over 30 years earlier. But now the church is in its second generation. And the first generation had passed on to the second generation. Great theology and involvement in the community and good works. But apparently they hadn't passed on a passion for the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, passion for Jesus, passion for anything, love for anyone, relationships all take work. And if you don't work on them, they will die out. Which brings us to the first of three principles that I'd like to cover this morning and I'd encourage you to take out the outline that's in your bulletin. It'll make it easier for you because the principles are a little bit in-depth and complicated, but important. Number one, be intentional. Be intentional in passing on to others your good theology and your passion for Jesus. And your passion for Jesus. You need both. And I've noticed over the years as I've looked at churches, you'll find churches that go, oh, they're really known for their good teaching. And they emphasize doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. And then you have these churches, oh, they're such a loving church. And the churches can get out of balance. You need truth and love like two wings of a plane. You need both to fly straight. You need good theology and you need love, or the church is going to die. John wrote some other letters. And in 1 John 4.16, he says, God is love. And some people camp on that verse. But in John 14.6, John is quoting Jesus. He says, I am the way and the truth. And some people camp on that verse. But they're both true. He's love and he's truth. And you have to have both to fly right. And the church in Ephesus had begun well. They had good doctrine and they had passion for Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul has spent more time helping to plant this church than any other church. He'd been there about three years in Ephesus. It's recorded for us in Acts 19. I'd like you to turn there with me in your Bibles or in your Bible app on your phone. 
In Acts chapter 19, Paul was making such an impact, not only in Ephesus, but all of that area of Asia Minor, which we call Turkey, that those who worshipped false gods were worried about the business that they were in of making idols that their business would fall off. Acts 19, this is 30 years earlier from John. Acts 19, verse 8. Verse 8, Paul entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months. Three months he's in the Jewish synagogue because Paul always went to the Jew first and then to the Greek after the Jews rejected him. So he started in the synagogue of Ephesus for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But, changes everything. When some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way. Jesus is the way, the truth and life. They spoke evil of the way before the multitude. He withdrew from them and took away the disciples' reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia, Asia is Asia Minor, it's the area of Turkey, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. They're saying his impact was so great that you could say that everybody knew. Amazing. I like verse 11. And God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Apparently, there are ordinary miracles and extraordinary miracles. (laughs) Let's find out what an extraordinary miracle is. So that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. So I guess the ordinary miracle is you lay hands on someone, you pray for them, and they get healed. That's an ordinary miracle. Extraordinary miracle, someone takes your handkerchief and just touches it next to somebody, and they're healed. I mean... Paul was getting people's attention. The gospel was going out. This was amazing. Jump down to verse 18. Verse 18, many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. How do you know if someone has truly believed in Jesus? Their life changes. If your life doesn't change, you have to doubt whether you really believed in Jesus. Because the Bible says you become a new creation. And so these people got born again. They turned from their witchcraft and those practices. Disclosed them, confessed them. Verse 19, and many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of all. And they counted up the price of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. How much money is 50,000 pieces of silver? It's 50,000 days wages. And they burned it up. Books of witchcraft. Jesus was making a huge difference in Ephesus. Verse 23. And about that time there arose no small disturbance. This is an understatement. Concerning the way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. Artemis was one of the the Greek gods they worshipped. She was the goddess of the hunt. She was also the virgin goddess of fertility. However that works, I can't figure that one out. But she was very popular in Ephesus. They loved her. And Paul's preaching was about to affect not just their religion, but their business. Verse 25. 
These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trade and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends on this business. They had made religion a business, and their business was in trouble. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, this Paul is persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. And not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess of Artemis be regarded as worthless. The temple to Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was 425 feet long. That's about one and a half times of an American football field long. It was 60 feet wider than American football field. It had 120 columns that were six stories high. It had 1,000 priestesses who also served as religious prostitutes. And it was considered an asylum, a sanctuary, where if you were a criminal and made it to the temple, they couldn't arrest you. So Ephesus was a city filled with wealth and immorality, debauchery and crime. And they had the temple of Artemis in it. And he says, back in verse 27, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship should even be dethroned from her magnificence. And when they heard this and were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And the city was filled with confusion. And they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions, from Macedonia. I want to show you a picture of that theater. It was a theater that could hold up to 24,000 people. So just go ahead right to the theater there. There's the theater picture I took back in 1988 before there was digital photography. But that's the theater that Paul's traveling companions were dragged into and there was about to be a riot. And Paul wanted to go in there. But the other disciples said, don't go in there, Paul. They're going to kill you. This is a huge, wealthy city. It's the best excavated ancient city today. Let me show you a a GoPro video taken um, a few years ago when I was there on a trip so you can see a little bit idea of what the the city was like. That's the main road. All along the main road were pillars. It would have been little niches for, for statues of gods and Roman emperors. Little small little houses of worship to different gods along the main road. And that's the Library of Celsius, yeah. third largest mm-hmm. library in the ancient world. You see a glimpse of what all this must have looked like, huh? With so many people there, they had to have public bathrooms. They had running water with flush toilets. There's very little privacy. But there's water running underneath those, and a trough in front with water where you can wash your hands. And then they've started excavating the homes of the wealthy that lived in Ephesus. Beautiful homes. It was a wealthy city. It was the wealthiest city in Asia Minor at the time. The largest city, the wealthiest city. 
And you'll see in the excavations that they had mosaic floors. They had mosaic walls. And this one house had six, it was 6,000 square feet of a house for the wealthy in Ephesus. And this is where the gospel was making an impact. And so the church had started with a tremendous bang in the city of Ephesus. But fast forward 30 years, the second generation of the church, they had lost their passion for Jesus Christ and needed to get it back. Back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, we saw previously that John was given an outline of the book that he was tasked to write. And in verse 19 of chapter 1, it says, Write the things which you have seen. That's the vision which he saw in chapter 1. And then he is told to write in the second section of his book, The Things Which Are. Those are chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches. And then he's told to write the third section, The Things Which Shall Take Place. And those are chapters 4 to 22, the biggest section of the book. And right now we're in chapters 2 and 3, the things which are the seven letters to the seven messengers or pastors and their churches. And Jesus gives a vision to each of the pastors, each of the churches to reveal himself. And in chapter 2, verse 1, to the church in Ephesus, it says, to the one who holds the seven stars, the pastors in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The word among is not the best translation there. It should be the one who walks in the middle is what it says in the Greek. The one who walks in the middle of the seven lampstands. The vision that they were getting is that Jesus is the center of the church. And that's what they needed to see. They had gotten off center. They would continued church without Jesus in the center of the church. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, verse 17, listen to what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, and Jesus is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Unless Jesus is the center of your family, your family is going to fall apart. Unless Jesus is the center of your life, your life is going to fall apart. You go, well, it's not falling apart. Well, if you don't realize it's falling apart, then it's really falling apart. Because Jesus needs to be the center. This church didn't realize it had fallen apart. But Jesus was no longer the center of the church. Verse 16 of Colossians 1. For in Him all things were created, both in the heavens and earth. If you don't believe in a little creation, I don't know how you get around this verse. It says, in Him all things were created, both in heavens and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. It's about Jesus. And he is a sinner. And the church in Ephesus had made it about teaching deeds, works. But Jesus was no longer the center of the church. So in chapter 2, verse 5 of Revelation, Jesus gives them this solution. Remember. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember the past passion, the past love you have, and repent. The Greek word for that is metanoeo, which means to have a change of mind. It has the idea of turning around, 
Get back. Get that passion back. And when you have that passion back, do the deeds you did at first. Don't do the empty deeds that you're doing now. Do the deeds that are filled with the love of Jesus Christ. Or else, (laughs) I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place. I'll shut down the church. The best thing you can do for a church without Jesus is to shut it down. And that's what he's going to do. So we learn a second principle from our text, and that's this. The second principle is to revive your passion for Jesus. How do you revive it? To revive your passion for Jesus, renew your vision of Jesus. Renew your vision of Jesus. That's why Jesus shows up and gives them a vision of the pastor's in the hand of Jesus. Unless the pastor is in the hand of Jesus, there's a problem with the church. And unless Jesus is the center of the church, there's a problem with the church. Did you notice the vision? The people were not given a vision of seven lampstands. They were given a vision of Jesus, surrounded by seven lampstands. It's about Jesus being the center. And if you want to revive your passion for Jesus, renew your vision of Jesus. Because who is it that you get passionate about? The person you know. And the better you know them, the more passionate you are about them. But if you don't know them, you can have no passion. Although I spent most of my school years in Southern California going to school, my last two years of high school were spent on the East Coast in Rhode Island, Portsmouth High School. And while we were in Rhode Island, we attended a small Baptist church that was pastored by a a really old and wise pastor by the name of Pastor Ed. I look back now, and that old wise pastor must have been maybe 29, you know, but but he seemed old to me. But his passion for Jesus changed my parents' lives and changed mine. I don't remember anything he taught. But I remember his passion for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I remember Pastor Ed used to say something like this. The problem is not the problem, and the answer is not the answer. The problem is not the problem, and the answer is not the answer. He says, the problem that you're having really is with your relationship to Jesus Christ. And the answer is getting closer to Jesus. The problem is not the problem, the answer is not the answer. And you go, yeah, but I'm having marriage problems or roommate problems. I'm having financial problems or health problems, church problems, work problems, parenting problems. How is that about Jesus? Well, they all become less of an issue and less intense when your relationship with Jesus Christ becomes more intense. Improve your relationship with Jesus and watch your other problems decrease in number and intensity. I mean, think about it. A Christ-centered, Christ-filled person never resolves, never resolves conflicts with others by screaming at them, by swearing at them, by name-calling, by blaming, by hitting, by holding a grudge, by seeking revenge, by slandering them, by gossiping, by lying. By ignoring problems. Or by refusing to admit that maybe they are the problem. You make Christ the center and life gets a lot better. 
Because the problem is not the problem and the answer is not the answer. The problem has to do with the relationship with Jesus Christ and the answer is getting closer to Him. Pastor, are you saying that then my life will be perfect? No. I'm just saying it will be better. Perfection awaits us. Which brings us to a third principle that is all through the Scriptures. And that's this, number three. The intensity and frequency of your problems decrease, decrease with the increase of your intensity and frequency with Jesus. The intensity and frequency of your problems decrease with the increase of your intensity and frequency with Jesus. Look how Jesus puts it himself in Matthew 11. In Matthew 11, 28 and 29, Jesus says this. 11, 28, come to me. Make Christ the center. Have a closer relationship with me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. You have problems? You feel overwhelmed? Come to Jesus, and I will give you rest. Things are better with Jesus. Take my yoke upon, upon you. A yoke, like the oxen yoke. You are yoked to Jesus. You go where He goes, and learn from me, and I'm gentle and humble in heart. And listen to this. You shall find rest for your souls. If you want rest for your souls, Jesus says... Come to Him, because the problem's not the problem. The answer's not the answer. The problem is your relationship with Jesus Christ. Make Him the center. Make it about Him, because life is better with Jesus. And the intensity and frequency of your problems will decrease as you increase your intensity and frequency with Jesus. And I remind you that those stars... Our messengers are pastors. And this letter starts off with speaking to the pastor to make sure he realizes and he stays in the hand of Jesus. Or he shouldn't be pastoring the church. Revelation 2, 4 and 5. I have this against you. You have left your first love. How do you get the love back? You remember. You repent. And you return. It's never too soon and it's never too late to fall passionately in love with Jesus Christ. But the letter's not over. When you're going to correct somebody, it's often good to start with a praise. And then while they're smiling, give them that correction. And while they're looking gloomy... Finish with the praise. So he adds a PS, a postscript. You know, it's the most important thing. It, it's sort of like when someone calls you on the phone and they're chatting and wondering how your vacation was and how your day was. And you, get, you go, well, I got to go. I go, wait, wait, wait. There's one more thing. That one more thing is the whole reason they called. One more thing. Can you take me to the airport tomorrow? <laughs> so this is the one more thing. Verse 6. Revelation 2, yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Who are the Nicolaitans? Nobody knows, but we hate them. (laughs) Verse 7, he who has an ear, that's like everybody, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. So it's not just to the pastor, it's to the church. And here's what he says. 
To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Remember the tree of life in the paradise of God in Genesis 3? That when man sinned, God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden and put a cherubim with a flaming sword to guard the tree of life. He shut the door to paradise. Well, he says, I'm going to open the door to paradise. I'm going to let you back to the tree of life. He didn't want us to eat of the tree of life when we were sinful and live forever in a sinful state. He wants us to be holy and live forever. And he says, I'm going to open the door to paradise. And you know who gets to go through the door is the one who overcomes. What do I have to do to overcome? Well, John has already told us in 1 John 5.5 how we overcome. 1 John 5.5 And who is the one who overcomes the world? How do you overcome? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And so Jesus says, Trust me. Put your faith in me. I got it covered. And I'll open the door of paradise to you. And who doesn't want that? Let's pray together. I'd like to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes, but I'd still like to talk to you for a moment as you listen. Have you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you overcome the world? By putting your faith in Jesus. Do you believe that he died for your sins? That he rose from the grave and he conquered death? I don't mean you just know it in your head or in your mind. I mean, has your belief changed your life? That's how you know it's real. If you're here and you've never placed your faith in Christ and would like to, if you recognize He died for you and rose from the grave, if you want Him to be your Savior from sin and grant you paradise, just ask Him. Say, Lord Jesus, be my Savior. I come to you. I yield my will to yours. I love you. Lord Jesus, we do love you. We pray that you would increase our passion for you and give us a fresh vision of who you are at the center of everything in our lives and especially this church. And Lord, as the pastor of this church, the lead pastor, Lord, I just ask that you would hold me in your hand and guide me and fill me and use me for your glory, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. Amen. I'm going to close with 2 Corinthians 13, 14, our time together. Just a beautiful benediction involving the Trinity. What an awesome God. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the sweet fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with each and every one of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great Sunday. God bless you all.